234,000. That's the number of Americans who have died from COVID-19 as of November 5th. 100 million. The number of Americans who cast their vote before Tuesday. 67%. The voter turnout in the 2020 general election. Potentially the highest turnout since 1900, when 74% of eligible voters cast a ballot. 270. The number of electoral votes needed to secure the White House, a number neither candidate reached on election night. 222. That's the a.m. Eastern time, early Wednesday morning, when President Trump spoke and falsely claimed he'd won the election and that he was prepared to go to the Supreme Court to dispute any unfavorable result. Melissa, all the votes have been cast, but it's time to perform a system check on how we count the votes. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. Where we talk to the experts to help fix your systemic problems. On this episode of System Check, we'll be talking with Rashad Robinson, spokesperson for Color of Change PAC, Kristen Clark, president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, Blair Kelly, professor of history at North Carolina State University, and Jane McAlevey, the nation's strikes correspondent. And we will bring you voices and insights from our System Check Live election night coverage, including Nation Sports Editor Dave Zirin, NYU Associate Professor Dr. Christina Beltran, Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington, and Representative Karen Bass of California. It's a packed episode, Melissa, so let's get started. Dorian, I kind of feel like I need to add one more number to uh, the numbers Hmm. that we started with, Mm -hmm. and it's the number four. Hmm. Because four is the total number of hours that I have slept since Tuesday. (laughs) And Uh I, I know that my anxiety right now isn't healthy, it's not helpful, but I haven't been able to stop myself from spinning out worst case scenarios through my mind all night. Mm. And it is not helped by watching cable news anchors furiously coloring the map red and blue and discussing all the different ways to count to 270. I just keep thinking, ah, make it stop. Okay, let's dig in there, Melissa, because the results are related to the outcomes. And, you know, I want to go back to that map coloring that's irritating you because in the (laughs) system of the Electoral College, Even when we count every vote, not every vote counts equally. Okay, you're gonna have to explain that. When the Electoral College gives us a different result than the popular vote, it's not because it's somehow broken. It's because the Electoral College was designed to favor states with smaller populations. Our system of counting the votes was created explicitly to favor slaveholding Southern states. They were agrarian, they were more sparsely populated, and especially since black folk, as you know, only counted as three-fifths of a person, less power to the people. Mm. So to ensure that the balance of power tipped in favor of slaveholders, we ended up with a system which values some votes over others. Now, the result of this has been that Democrats have won the most votes in seven of the last eight presidential elections. 
No political party has ever done that since the invention of our modern two-party system in 1828. So think about that, Melissa. Because I don't seem to think we've won that many. Exactly. And exactly. And this gets to the point of history because historical choices have a long lag. They shape the terrain for us today, which we often take for granted. And what it means today is that when it's time to decide the presidency, an individual vote in South Dakota weighs almost four times as much as a single vote in California. And guess whose votes tend to have the least value in the Electoral College? We are also only having this conversation because of the legacies of slavery and the Electoral College, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't even be in this conversation because the popular vote is going to be overwhelmingly against Donald Trump. That was Rashad Robinson. He's president of Color of Change and spokesperson for the Color of Change PAC, the political arm of Color of Change. He joined System Check the morning after the election. The majority of Americans went to the polls and and did not want Donald Trump to be president. And they elected someone that they actually didn't necessarily love to get rid of Donald Trump. And so I think that all of these are also part of the story. And this is why I think racial justice is such an important point of how we have to face this, because when we don't center racial justice, we think about our wins simply on the timeline of electoral cycles. And if we think about our our work on a timeline of electoral cycles, we can think we've had wins that we actually don't have wins. And that's what I mean by not calling this a win for democracy when people had to wait five hours in line, not calling this a win for democracy when so many of the votes were sort of uh, are trying to be thrown away when black votes are trying to be stolen right as we we speak right now. We should call this what black people have constantly had to do win races with our hands tied behind our backs or, you know, starting off behind. Um, And um, and we should recognize that if we really want to win, then we're going to have to do the long term work of building. And that means building infrastructure, building campaigns and building the long term work that exists outside of electoral cycles, like the work we've done around prosecutors at Color of Change or the work that needs to be done around national popular vote, all of the sort of long term work that upends these sort of norms and conditions that have baked in inequality. That baked in aspect of devaluing black votes at the presidential level is critical to understanding why it can be so difficult to turn electoral results into meaningful political outcomes. Now, let's set aside the presidential race for just a moment and think about how different we would feel about election night 2020 if our primary focus was on the state, local and congressional level. So in New Jersey, voters amended the state's constitution to legalize recreational marijuana, which is a critical step toward reversing decades of over-policing and mass incarceration for black communities. Or take New York, where Mondaire Jones and Richie Torres, two young, progressive, gay black men, were elected to the House of Representatives. We zoom over to Missouri. Cori Bush was elected to Congress. She's the activist we first came to know for her uncompromising leadership of Black Lives Matter in Ferguson after the death of Michael Brown. And it's worth pointing out that all of the freshman congresswomen of the squad, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and AOC, won re-election too. To go to the South, voters in Mississippi adopted a new state flag, replacing the Confederate flag adopted by Jim Crow lawmakers in 1894 that flew for 126 years. In Oklahoma, Marie Turner, the first queer, black, 
Muslim and non-binary person was elected to the state legislature. And yes, you heard me right. I didn't say New York. I said Oklahoma. And I'm not done yet, Melissa. Let's look at California, where voters approved Prop 17, restoring voting rights to people in the state following incarceration. They also halted Prop 20 that would have reversed so many recent reforms to the state's criminal justice system. Or Florida, where voters approved by over 60% a bound initiative to increase the state's minimum wage to $15 an hour. Of course, at the same time that voters in the state delivered a heartbreaking win again for the Republican candidate. And yet, I do feel better, Dorian. I mean, even though you ended there kind of talking about that Florida Electoral College point, I mean, that really is a very different picture of what happened on Tuesday night. And it does suggest that when we have a system that not only counts every vote, but weighs every vote equally, then we have the power to end up with really different election results and pretty different outcomes. So, Dorian, the contrast you just laid out between what is happening in the presidential system and then on the other levels, I think mm-hmm. is probably a perfect illustration that the system of counting the votes is absolutely just as important as the system of casting the votes. But I am not quite ready to rest easily because, after all, there is a big issue here. The president of the United States is working really hard to stop those states from counting all the votes. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. So I just want to thank you. So clearly, that was one big, scary-ass mess of lies. Obviously, Trump had not won. And there certainly was no fraud on the public. And that threat to go to the Supreme Court, that one is absolutely chilling Mm. because it is exactly what so many legal observers warned about during the confirmation hearings of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So I asked Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law, how we can possibly transform votes into power if our system makes it possible to push through a lifetime judicial appointment at the exact same moment that the majority of Americans are casting ballots against the president who nominated her. It's crazy, isn't it? It's also a moment that I think hopefully underscores for the public how much the courts matter. We talk a lot about our votes mattering a whole lot, but the courts matter too. And this is just devastating. 
unprecedented and really just rocks me and so many people to our core because we turn to the courts. We rely on the courts as being that forum of last resort where we can get a fair shot as civil rights lawyers, where we can stand up for victims of discrimination and look for judges who are going to be fair and impartial and do the right thing. And I most certainly think we're not going to get that with Amy Coney Barrett. I think she is an extremist who was selected for a very particular reason. I think her short time on the Seventh Circuit, her time as a law professor, her writings, her speeches makes crystal clear that she is somebody who is going to turn the clock back on civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and more. And her very committed focus on originalism is perhaps what's most dangerous about her. This idea that interpreting the Constitution is about trying to understand what was intended when the Constitution was penned is really troubling. Trying to get back into the heads of people in the 1800s, you know, we're talking about somebody who will drag us back into a racist bygone era. What was intended? Isn't that exactly the problem if this particular Supreme Court ends up with an opportunity to weigh in on this presidential election? Because as you pointed out, Dorian, there really is no doubt what the framers of the Constitution intended when it comes to the presidential vote. They intended to create a system tipped in favor of those who benefited most directly from racism and human bondage. They intended to create a system that put multiple barriers between the popular will and the result of a presidential election. Yes, exactly, Melissa. And this was a system design choice by the constitutional framers. I'm struck by the argument of political scientist Cory Robin on this, who argues that, quote, a central purpose of the document, meaning the Constitution, is to check majoritarian government, giving a small group of elites the power to thwart the will of the democratic majority. There you go. Or to put it more sharply, the three-legged stool that is the bedrock of conservatism in 2020 are one, the Electoral College, two, the Senate, and three, the courts. And these counter-majoritarian political institutions uphold white elite minority rule. Trump was standing on his three-legged stool Tuesday night when he threatened to take the Electoral College vote to the Supreme Court a court where he expects rulings biased in his favor because of not one, not two, but three justices he's appointed in his presidency. Ooh. All whom, by the way, played key strategic roles as partisan Republican hacks in the controversial 2000 election that yes, the Supreme Court ultimately decided against the will of the majority. There is so much work to do to restore and strengthen our democracy, but I feel like 2020 in so many respects has just ripped that Band-Aid off and exposed all the fault lines. And so you hear people talking about court reform and reforming the Electoral College, and it's just a matter of when are we going to actually get down to business and really start to roll up our sleeves and do this work. And that's going to require the public really holding their elected officials accountable and putting pressure to bear on them in 2021 when we get a chance to catch our breath to figure out how do we 
address all that's broken in democracy right now. A chance to catch our breath and heal? Is that an outcome our system can deliver? While results were not known on Tuesday night, one fact was clear. American voter turnout, a full 67%, was the highest it's been in 120 years. 120 years. That's the presidential election of 1900, a contest between William McKinley and William Jennings Bryant. And as a historical note, this was actually a rematch between McKinley and Bryant, clashed initially in the 1896 campaign for the presidency. 1896, 1900. For me, these dates signal something different than presidential politics, something other than historic turnout. These dates signal Jim Crow. In 1896, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled against Homer Plessy in the landmark case Plessy v. Ferguson, establishing the doctrine of separate but equal and beginning the descent into a period known by historians of the African-American experience as the nadir. These dates and that history is why I wanted to talk with our next guest, Professor Blair Kelly. Professor Kelly is the Assistant Dean for Interdisciplinary Studies and International Programs for the College of Humanities and Social Science at North Carolina State University. She's an Associate Professor of History and is on the faculty of the Public History Graduate Program. Blair, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Blair, I haven't been able to sleep wondering if this election is a trap door into the next nadir. Is 2020 1900? I don't think it can be just like it. So much has changed. So much is different. And yet the echoes of um, suppression are striking. When we think about the ways in which folks are antagonizing the vote. Surely if you are trying to win a contest of ideas and your ideas are just and make sense to the majority of people, You don't have to go to court over and over again to try and get votes thrown out. You don't have to limit uh, the counting of votes. You don't have to come up with with funny laws that make it confusing for people to participate. You don't have to spread misinformation. You don't have to intimidate people at the polls. And so when we look at the elections in the 1890s and 1900, those are the kinds of things we see. Those are the activities that, that took place to to upend um, the coalitions, the fragile coalitions that African-Americans had with white Republicans. So what you've written about the start of the nadir has never left me, that people living in that moment, a period of freedom following centuries of enslavement, a period of expanding possibilities and increased representation, those people did not know at the turn of the century that they were at the start of an era that would be marked by decades of suppression and second-class citizenship. And I just keep thinking now, how would we know? How would we know if we're on the same precipice? We don't. And what's, what's striking to me is this morning, my big question was, well, why, why did we have Obama? Like, what was that? Who, who did that? Who voted for, for that person? Because I'm wondering where 
where those folks are now. And I'm wondering what they, they saw in that moment. Um, and so it's a, it's a similar kind of echo of, you know, where were, where were our friends, as J. Max Barber said, to segregationists as they closed in around them? That where are the people who were interested in reconstruction? Where were the people who were passing civil rights laws in the 1870s? Where did they go? Why don't you see our value anymore? Why don't you want us to participate in society anymore? And so I think they're tremendously hurt by the situation and, and, and you know, the real betrayal, the personal betrayal, like J. Max Barber as um, the editor of The Voice of the Negro in Atlanta, which he starts in 1900, right? In the middle of the time, he has no idea. He's, he thinks this is a positive time, the time when African-Americans can show off what they, they've accomplished and what they do. And he's He's, you know, he's doing these amazing things. He's bringing all kinds of voices to the fore and the world closes in around him. And the Atlanta race riots six years later make it impossible for him to publish in that city anymore. He has to flee in the middle of the night for his life. Um, he's ridiculed by uh, Booker T. Washington for doing so. You know, he's dogged on every side. And that's when he says, where are our friends? Mm. Um, so it's, it's powerful to remember that we might be thinking we're on an uptick, right? This is a moment of, of a great black renaissance in terms of our intellectual um, capabilities and the, and the things we're presenting to the world. The, the panoply of people who are doing this work right now is powerful. And yet we know that doesn't stop it. That doesn't have to stop it. Right. It's closing in all around us. But it might not be. It might not be. Right. It, it might be a wedge. It might be a moment of, of shift. It might be a reminder to us mm. of the difficulty of coalition. It might be a reminder of the work that we have to continue to do. It might be an important reminder for us black intellectuals mm. to think about the working class who are the base of this change, right? We, we very rarely think about their power, their determination. Um, I'm currently working on a book project called Black Folk. And I'm you know, researching my own ancestors as I research the working class, because that's where I come from. Those are the people I come from. I'm the first generation to be able to do the kinds of things I've been able to do with a PhD. And yet I see their determination. I found my oldest black ancestor that I could trace on my mother's side back to slavery. Uh, he was born in 1822. He's a blacksmith. He's held in bondage by a man named Joseph Rucker in Elbert County, Georgia, um, a place where my family had been brought by force from Virginia in bondage, um, probably had been in bondage all the way back to colonial times. Uh, but I find Henry. Um, I find him marrying his wife after freedom. I find him working as a blacksmith in slavery, but not in freedom. Mm. But I also find him registering to vote with an X. He doesn't know how to sign his name, um, but he signs that X on the line and above it, it says his mark. So it's, it's a powerful reminder that I had ancestors who experienced bondage for 40 years and showed up to vote Yep, with the Klan all around with no friends in sight and put his mark down. So who are we to say, oh, we don't have the right kind of candidates. I mean, I, what kind of candidates did Henry have to vote for? <laughs> right. Were they, were they really uh, progressive enough? Were they thinking about this, you know, working class agenda that he would have needed? No, but he knew he needed to make his mark. And so that moment of, of making our mark, I, who am I to not be brave in this moment? Who am I not to be strong in this moment? He is the beginnings of, of generations of people who did amazing things. And so I know that we can be that too. 
I know when I look at the, cl- the class story, when I look at the black working class, when I look at people who had humble beginnings and humble endings, hmm. I know uh, that their work is meaningful and rich. And that's our lesson. I'm actually speechless because uh, you just moved. I see you too, Melissa, that I'm speechless, but I'm going to ask you a question, Dr. Kelly, <laughs> okay. because what, wow. So you said you hear echoes of suppression and that's what's striking. And one way to think about voter suppression is it comes from a position of weakness, not strength. Absolutely. And so can you talk to us about what is the threat to the system of counting black votes as opposed to winning them over? What is the threat to the system of counting black votes like your ancestor and particularly black working class votes? Well, black votes united with white votes that are rational, that are thinking about their uh, positionality are extremely dangerous. Because in what planet would white working class people not want access to health care on a profound scale? On what planet would they not want a higher minimum wage nationally passed? Right. On what planet would they not want access to early child care for their kids when they go to work so that they can have pre-K for free? On what planet would they not want these things? They would want to fight these things on planet white supremacy. On planet white supremacy, you being more important than me, even if even if that doesn't mean anything, you can't eat your importance. You can't live in your importance. You can't retire on your importance. You can't take your importance to the hospital and, and put that down as a little card. Hey, I'm more important than black people. None of those things matter. So when working class white people and working class black people get together, they recognize their commonality. And there's a whole lot more of them than there are of everybody else. Thank you. Blair Kelly, professor of history, North Carolina State University. Thank you for joining System Check today. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, I mean, racism is the hell of a drug. And with that single pithy observation, Nation Sports Editor Dave Zirin captured what many of us were feeling as we watched initial results from the presidential election pour in on Tuesday night. Indeed, Melissa, you and I hosted five hours of live coverage on Tuesday night. You can go back and check out the extraordinary guests and important insights of Election Night 2020 with System Check on our Facebook page. But there were a few common themes that many of our guests returned to throughout the evening. Yeah, I mean, racism is the hell of a drug. We watched as millions voted to re-elect a president whose policies separated children from their families at the border, whose rhetoric gave aid and comfort to violent white supremacists, a president who just 10 months ago was impeached, and a president who has witnessed nearly a quarter of a million Americans perish from the coronavirus pandemic while responding in a manner so casual, it's cruel. State after state went red as Americans chose to return President Trump to the White House despite a record that would have been disqualifying for any other modern American president. And honestly, one reason stood out. Yeah, I mean, racism is the hell of a drug. NYU professor Christina Beltran suggested it's useful to think of whiteness 
as a political color. I want us to think about whiteness in terms of like there's white identity, there's just being a white person, and there's whiteness in terms of an ideology of domination, right? Like whiteness as a political color. And so I think when we think about whiteness as a political color, that's also, as we talk about Florida, I think that's what we can also think about the ways that different populations can get hailed into whiteness, like certain segments of the Latinx population, for example. But I think this idea, I think we don't understand how democratic and participatory things like Jim Crow were, right? That it wasn't just a matter of exclusion. I mean, we often use the, the water fountains as the paradigmatic example of Jim Crow, but the real reality of Jim Crow was that it allowed bus drivers, waitresses, real estate folks, teachers, it allowed a wide ranging mass base of white citizens to police black bodies and try to police those bodies and try to determine certain forms of racial domination over those groups. So it is a participatory civic experience. When, when Adam Sewer talked about cruelty is the point, mm. my, my, I, I completely agree with him, but I also, as a political scientist and as a political theorist, wanted to think about how white domination is a civic experience. And I think it's a civic experience that a certain segment of Trump voters have less and less access to now because of things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65. But what they do still have access to is a non-citizen population that they can continue sort of wielding the law and exceeding the law. They get to do racial domination in the name of the law. And that's a, a rare population where they get to invoke the law to do race domination. So that to me is part of what the Trump era has kind of opened up is it it has reanimated something that has always been in our politics, but it's given it a kind of deep legitimation and energized, you know, Trump rallies are a kind of lynch rally and it's, it's mob violence and speech, right? You get to get together in this participatory civic way and do racial violence, at least verbally, minimally verbally, but you can also go work on the border. You can go join a militia. So there's these participatory forms of white domination that I think we really have to think more deeply about. And Dave Zirin? And then you have this other side of things where you have, you know, an aging white population in the United States that is delinked from traditional organizations, whether you're talking about unions or clubs. I mean, people are more atomized than they've ever been before. And you have a president who is willing to represent autocracy and willing to represent their bigotry and saying, I will stand up for you in the face of this changing world. And I think we're seeing tonight that that's still an incredibly powerful message in the face of that. And we're seeing that even though, I mean, it's, it's such a referendum on, on, I think, white consciousness is like, even though you've had over 230,000 deaths because of coronavirus, even though Donald Trump is someone who absolutely, you know, like is, is the most vile creature one could possibly imagine. He, he also appeals to those folks on the sheer basis of I am here to represent you. I am going to protect you against the hordes. You know, and those and, and against the changing America and against the changing demographics of America. And so that's where we are tonight. I mean, it's it's and, and we're going to see that, you know, not not all whiteness plays out the same in a context of a racist society. Yeah. I mean, racism is the hell of a drug. So, Melissa, let's transform this analysis into action with this week's system checklist. Dorian, I think we need to listen to what some of our guests had to say about how to make this moment of confusion 
and opportunity for action. So I want to start with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's a Democrat from Washington and also chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And she asked us to take a hard look at ourselves, to find our connection with others, and to build new intersectional institutions. I think it requires us to dig deep in ourselves and to put the we before the me. Hmm. And I say that because I think that particularly in difficult times, I think, you know, which we're in, um, a lot of people struggling with their jobs, with their rent, you know, with their health care. And I think the task for us is to really craft the story that is true that connects you and me to each other, that connects me to my neighbor, and that makes it clear that my liberation is tied up with yours. If we don't have that, then we will have a splintered movement. Mm. And so I think that, you know, building multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-generational coalitions, as you know, is something I've done for 20 years. And it requires listening It requires resisting the Olympics oppression, you know, resisting Mm -hmm. the hierarchy of oppressions and being willing to understand that there are some things that are very fundamental to any kind of justice for everyone. And I would include in that our fight against white supremacy and anti-blackness as a number one thing that we have to reckon with. And it's heartening to me to see, for example, South Asian Americans forming a group for Black Lives Matter, because I think we're taking Mm -hmm. on that oppression that exists within our own communities. Now, at the same time, I think we have to think about power building institutions. Mm -hmm. The labor movement used to be that. And we need to rebuild that again. But we also need to think about alternatives to those power building institutions so that we can start to collect our power. And then it's really about staying very closely engaged, both inside and outside, but also with each other. People have to know that the progressive movement, however you want to define that, has their back on their mm. what is their issue. Mm. And then we all have to define these things as our issues, right? That's what the Immigrant Workers' Freedom Ride back in 2003, we used to say, labor rights are immigrant rights, immigrant rights are workers' rights. And you've heard me say before, Dorian, that for those of us that are people of color, um, we live our lives in intersectional ways. I am not a woman on Monday, a mom on Tuesday, a worker on Wednesday, and an immigrant on Thursday. I'm all of those things all of the time. And we just have to learn how to fight for all of them while being disciplined about the sequencing so that we can actually get legislation passed. Congresswoman Karen Bass, Democrat from California and chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, reminded us that even when we elect the candidates of our choice to office, we need to continue to hold them accountable, creating the outside pressure that allows elected officials to move more boldly. It's not just voting. That's not enough. I mean, I am hoping that the trauma of the last four years gets people to understand that voting is just the floor. You need to be active and involved, hold leaders accountable and make your agenda clear and then fight for it. What we do in our American culture is we elect people and we expect them to go solve all the problems. But we can't solve the problems, especially for our people, if we don't have a strong outside strategy. 
The only reason why we even addressed policing legislatively is because of the movement outside that forced it to happen on the inside. And I think as act activists on the outside, though, I think could get better at being more strategically mm -hmm. using people on the inside and, and understanding that we might have differences, but sometimes even when we differ, that outside pressure is still really helpful to those of us on the inside. We also sought advice for this moment from Jane McAlevey, organizer, author, and scholar. She's currently a senior policy fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Labor Center. She's also author of A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy, and is the Nation Magazine's Strikes Correspondent. She called this a movement moment requiring nonviolent direct action. As an organizer, we understand there are some things called movement moments, which is literally the moment when people like right now in this country are sort of waiting around trying to figure out what's the most useful thing that they could do to defend democracy. Like in Florida in 2000, where we know that Al Gore actually won the majority of the votes, the majority of the votes are likely to go with Biden and Harris. And so you've got millions, tens of millions of people around the country right now who were waiting to be called to the streets by any number of their national organizations and national coalitions and formations. Our side, the forces of good, the forces of justice need to not hesitate in moments like this. We needed to be, we need to be peacefully, nonviolently in the streets, framing a national narrative Framing a national narrative is what Jane McAlevey calls a movement moment. So Dorian, is there anything that people can do to make it clear they want every single vote counted? Well, yes, Melissa, you know, right now folks can raise their voices on social media to demand that we count every vote. And listeners can go to our website to look at our system checklist for action items. I spent the, the evening before the election with a group of dreamer moms who have been doing a lot of work. And these are just undocumented moms, dads, parents. They have no relief. They don't have DACA. They don't have the hope. Well, I would say there's not really a, a, a policy way to save them right now. Um, they have a lot of hope. This is Astrid Silva, the director of Dream Big Nevada. Astrid works with families and communities who are unable to vote because they're not citizens. Still, these determined communities refuse to be voiceless. Astrid Silva gets today's final word. And I spent the evening with them and they've been working on campaigns and elections in Nevada for, for the past 10 years. And just being with them and, and sharing a little bit of, you know, that, that faith that they have, not only in their, in their religious beliefs, but also in their beliefs that the system will work for them. I think that's a reminder that a lot of us forget. We feel like we're hitting the wall all the time and, you know, and, and to be with them, it, it reminded me of what, what comes next. Not just, you know, what comes next if there's a favorable outcome or a bad outcome, but just in general, what are we going to do on the community, on, on our ground to actually help these families? 
And I think for us, it's going to be moving forward regardless. I think it is difficult because you feel a little bit of that, that pullback like an arrow because, you know, we do not want to be disappointed again. We, we, we all remember November 8th, 2016 and that feeling of what's going to happen. I, I remember that day vividly and we had a fear of what would come. We knew things may be a little bit difficult, but now we know we're certain it's a horrible, terror-filled administration. And so for us, it's it's really going back to our community members. It's it's energizing them to not feel defeated, that despite whichever way it goes, we, we have to keep going forward. That's a wrap for this episode. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. I'm Dorian Warren. And you've been listening to System Check. System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Didi Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of The Nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks this week to Shanta Covington, executive producer of System Check Election Night 2020, and to the extraordinary teams of Community Change Action and the Anna Julia Cooper Center for making election night magic. And let me not forget Miller Coffee, who is doing an amazing job with our social media.